Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Tony Davis moderates a discussion with author and editor Daryl Schweitzer and John Betancourt, author and publisher at Wildside Press. Tony is the former editor of Pulpfest's magazine, The Pulpster. Daryl and John, along with George H. Sithers, revived Weird Tales in 1988. 2023 marked the 100th anniversary of the fantasy and horror fiction magazine, Weird Tales. This podcast was recorded on August 4th at Pulpfest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tony begins. So, Dan, thank you very much for coming and, and uh, holding on for the graveyard shift as we're heading towards. So, uh, to paraphrase a bit what Mike had said to my immediate, my immediate right, George, uh, John Bettencourt, many of you, anyone who's owned a wild side press publication, will have seen his name before as founder, together with his wife Kim, and uh, publisher of Wildside Press. Uh, in terms of weird tales, he uh, purchased the rights in 2005, and in 2008 won a Hugo Award for Best Semi-Prosy. To my far right, Daryl Schweitzer, and hopefully some of you uh, see him at his table here at Pulpfest in the dealer's room. And uh, Daryl's a long-standing author, editor, and World Fantasy Special Award winner in 1992 for Weird Tales in the professional magazine uh, criteria. Now, the two of them together co-edited, uh, we mentioned with Mike, starting in 1987 through to 1990, they co-edited with uh, George Sithers' Weird Tales, the reincarnation from its original days and dying out as a digest in 54, a brief uh, appearance as a two-magazine special, San Francisco, I think it was. Yeah. Followed by Lynn Carter's... You left uh, Sam Moskowitz out. Sam Moskowitz's four semi-digests, yeah. uh, Lynn Carter's four zebra paperbacks, yeah, I think yep. they were, yeah. and continued on with these gentlemen. Now, John <clears throat> is a bit of cinema verite from his uh, youthful university days, produced a bit of a film here, and uh, the two gentlemen are going to be narrating its contents, as apparently the cassette with the original script is lost to posterity. So Mike is going to help us with the lights again, okay. now that he's at the other end of the room. And sitting down. <laughs> I, I will say one thing, this is not Amazing Story. This is Amazing Stories, not Weird Tales. Uh, both of us did work with George on Amazing Stories, but not that far back. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, I made this as a student film when I was 19 and attending Temple University. I was also working as an assistant at uh, Amazing Stories at the time. Yeah. And uh, the reason I thought it would be appropriate for this panel was that we transitioned from Amazing to Weird Tales and they were largely edited the same way. So um, you'll, you'll find out how Weird Tales was put together in the early Terminus Publishing Company days. Okay, I think we're ready to go. Yes, uh, keep in mind that 
I was 19. This was my first film uh, in my third film production class. And uh, this is our cast of famous assistant editors. And of course, George Sithers is editor. In a small house in Philadelphia in 1984. All right, this was George Sithers' house on Larchmont Street in Philadelphia. This is George, looking quite youthful. This is Daryl. A, a much, much, much younger Daryl. Back when, uh, was it David Drake called you a lean and hungry Cassius look? Yeah, I'm actually 32 at that point. This is how we picked the stories. <laughs> the, the, the stories actually came in huge quantities from the post office and uh, opening them and uh, assembling them to be read uh, on a production line, basically, because there were so many. Uh, George was an incredibly fast reader and was often the first reader for most of the manuscripts. And what you would do is, as you read it, you would take notes on the attached index card, which also contained the author's name and the story title and your comments. And after these were filled out, they went into a gigantic card file, library style, where they would be pooled from the card catalog the next time you submitted a story so you could refer back to previous submissions, which made everybody think that George took a personal interest in them. It was... Uh, fiendishly clever and actually very effective towards teaching authors and would-be authors what they were doing wrong and how to fix it. Because if you could comment on a half dozen stories over a period of two years, you could really put a career in context and see if they were improving or not. What are you going to do now, Daryl? Probably write a letter in George's name. I was effectively his corresponding secretary. Most of the letters that George signed I actually wrote. <clears throat> I'm going to reject the story, I think. You're not accepting it because George would have taken great pride in that. Uh -huh. But you see, you refer to the, the index card for your comments and yeah. you can uh, fill up a, a, reject, a rejection letter pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. George did not believe in form rejection letters, so everything that came in got a personal rejection letter or a personal acceptance. All right, what is this? That's, that's artwork. Who buy? Uh, it looks like maybe Barr. I think it might be Barr. I can't tell from here. George Barr. Uh, I would point out, George did have a lot of these little, little pieces of paper that we would also attach for things that we said over and over again. It's sort of like macros without the invention of a computer. All right, I can't tell what that is. Uh, this is assembling an issue. Uh, you, you go through the, uh, the stories you're selecting, you go through and you plot them out on a piece of paper, picking where they will fit into the magazine, because you have to have everything fit into an exact page count. Yeah, so you fill in those little boxes, and so frequently you would discover that the, that the artwork doesn't break right, and you'd have to put in a poem to make everything flip. That's Dinus Pacinius. Is that Lee Weinstein? That's John Ashmead. Oh, uh, with a beard? Yeah. 
I don't remember actually. The beer. Uh, yeah. I don't think it lasted terribly long. I don't think it did. Uh, but you can basically the idea is you've got to make a two-page spread actually face each other, and things, so you use a lot of one-page things to flip it over to make it come out right. That looks like a Val Lakey Lindhan illustration. And he had all the stories printed out and typeset ahead of time, which was an innovation of his, so that you knew exactly how long the typesetting would be and exactly where everything would fit when you laid it out. Yeah, the result was that an issue could be put together in an evening, where apparently at uh, T, you know at TSR they had a had you know sort of hell week where they put spent a whole week putting together issues in a hurry. We could you know we could do it in a few hours because we already had everything. And that's as we were assembling uh, blocks that were already, you know, typeset. Yeah, if it's if it's ten stories or twelve stories, it's not that huge a number. You just have to make sure that all the artwork falls on the proper pages, especially with two-page spreads. Yeah. And then you stick the limericks in at the end of the stories, where there's an extra blank half page or something. And if there's too many words, you cut them. Well, no, you, don't. no you, don't. you do not abridge stories to make them fit. If they don't fit, you put them in the next issue. Tell that to George and his scissors. Scissors. Uh, scissors, scissors. Say that three times fast. Three times fast. And of course, they were actually pasted up to make yeah. sure that everything went in the right place. Well, remember, this, there were no computers. This is, this is going to be taken to some place. Going to make these flats are going to be photographed, and that's how it's printed. It was unusual because George was actually doing the work of the art department, who should have been doing the layout, but TSR didn't really know what they were doing in terms of publishing at that time and let him get away with a lot more than most editors did. Uh, that's, that's not John Ashmead, that's John Septic. I'm sorry, John Septic, yeah. yeah. Who still has a beard? So this is, in fact, very close to how the first issues of Weird Tales were assembled. Although, um, when we were doing it ourselves, we actually paid a typesetting company to do the typesetting on the first issue. So we later began moving to uh, desktop publishing software. Uh, George used, I think, a um, program called Zyrite for most Zyrite of the Zyrite, and I forget what the page maker was. I believe it was... Um, it was a page Ventura maker. Publisher. Oh, Ventura, you're right, yeah. The one thing, I, I never mastered either of them. I never really learned production. See, now he's paging through to make sure that everything is exactly where it should be in the master script that the printer will have to follow. And there's notes to the printer, of course, if he wants anything special done. And then these are the final product. That's our first one. Yeah, the, um, this was originally done on eight millimeter film and transferred by the talented photo labs at Walmart 
to DVD for us. And um, they, they managed to lose a lot of the focus. These were actually quite sharp in the original. And that's not one of our issues. And this was actually my collection at the time. And I think that's uh, pretty much going to wrap it up. Well, we. Uh, oh, that that's interesting. That's that's an illustration from unknown <laughs> for uh, the uh, the roaring Cardi. trumpet. It was on George's wall for many years. <laughs> the secret life of magazine publishing revealed. Well, Thank I, you. That is indeed how you do it without a large company and a. Uh, I mean, you know, somebody like Street and Smith would have whole departments and they have a whole building and no, no we did it in George's house. And uh, that was actually one of the important uh, ways the organization held it. Basically what we were doing was holding together the same team which had helped George edit Asimov's and then Amazing. And then we uh, ran out of magazines and uh, George decided to become a literary agent. That didn't really work out very well. Uh, and then John, John convinced us that we were going to revive Weird Tales. He, did, he just said it with such enthusiasm and such conviction that we all went along with it. Had either of you been collecting Weird Tales as Oh, a yeah. yeah. I had been collecting Weird Tales since I was a kid. And hey, I can remember when you could buy issues of Weird Tales for 50 cents, although the post-war ones. So yeah. I, I actually had a lot of trouble finding pulp magazines when I was young. It took me... Uh, Years and years to find my first one. I think it was about 16 when I turned up a copy of Fantastic Universe. Finally, oh, was it Fantastic or was it Fantastic? It's it's the one with, it was the issue with Swordsman of Varnus in it. Oh, well, basically, well, I'm old enough to remember when there were still pulp magazines in the wild, and you could go to uh, um, you could go to antique shops or bookshops, particularly in Maine, where my my family went every uh, uh, summer. And you could still find pulp magazines in shops. And um, uh, I did once, I think some of my first, one of my first Weird Tales was a, actually my first Weird Tales was, was the, uh, the Queen of the Black Coast issue. And the reason I got that is that I would always find stuff in Maine that didn't really interest me. And uh, I would come back and trade it to Ozzy Train, who you may remember as a publisher uh, and, and bookseller. And I think I, I believe what I actually did. I, I think I swapped on the Doc Savage for that issue of Weird Tales, and I'd probably paid twenty-five cents for it or something. And in terms of division of labor, the two of you and George, how how was that work out with Weird Tales? Well, there was a lot of retraining to do with George, because he was used to being um, the person in charge and uh, didn't really understand that he had partners for a while. And I think we finally cured him of that by taking him out to dinner repeatedly and us paying for it rather than him. Uh, um, I think it, it finally sunk in. Well, remember, George is a, was a, um, an army colonel, so he's used to being in charge. But um, well, the, way it worked, the way it worked is actually George was usually the first reader of most everything. I was actually the slowest reader. I was the one who, uh, you know, who would read carefully when things were being considered. Uh, but I was also the fastest typist, I think, or pretty close to it. I wrote most of the rejection letters, and I was effectively his corresponding secretary, and I was the one who often wrote the difficult letters. He would sort of tell me what he wanted to say. I mean, we need like a wheedle out of something. Um, now, this isn't quite a, uh, a Weird Tales story, but George, remember, at the same time, was still publishing Amra, you know, the Robert E. Howard magazine. He once got a letter from, addressed to Amra from this guy, a young man in the, somewhere in the South, who is in jail. 
And the reason he was in jail is that this fellow believed that the Conan stories were true. And he thought that Conan would be his role model in life. And of course, Conan began his career as a thief. And that was why he was in jail. And what would Conan do next but uh, try to escape? And that was why he was further in jail. And um, my job was to write to this guy and talk him down to sanity. Didn't argue with him at all about the point of, uh, you know, no, no, the Hyborian Age didn't happen and you're completely full of it. No, I very gently tried to tell him that, you know, maybe this isn't appropriate for the 20th century. This is not a good way to model your life. And so George would have me write letters like that sometimes. And of course, George's name was signed to it. If you actually still have any of those letters, there's usually a um, little initial down in the lower right corner. Actually, I'll tell you who really wrote it. It's a secret code. <laughs> yeah, it's a secret code. Uh, but otherwise, um, well, we would otherwise, the way it worked on buying stories, because there was one disagreement with the first issue, and then we decided we had to fix this, um, which is basically a story had to be bought on a two-thirds vote. You know, so two to, two to buy, one to reject. Yeah. Um, uh, well, though, actually, well, I, I talked to him into buying a couple of things that somebody else wanted to reject, but... Well, you know, if you're passionate about it, you'll make a case to yeah, the, the uh, weak link to get them to go along with Right, you. whatever, but anyway... Because um, uh, we, we all had very different <clears throat> tastes, I think, yeah. and it complemented each other, yeah. which was one of the magazine's strengths. Yeah, I think, actually, George, George had never grown up reading Weird Tales. He um, wasn't a horror reader. And so what I always did, and for the many years when, when I was working and when you weren't around, the way I always got him, kept him going was by telling him, uh, think it's un pretend it's unknown. Pretend you're editing unknown. Because <laughs> there's nothing, uh, there was nothing uh, that we published that you know, couldn't cross, cross over into unknown. Now, George had a bound set of unknown. He was a very devoted, uh, you know, Campbellite of John Campbell. Yes. Uh, so he very much admired unknown. And of course, he knew his sword and sorcery and so on. But he wasn't, he, you know, he was not somebody who grew up reading Lovecraft. No. Or even had much real familiarity with Weird Tales before we started it. And no, I, sorry. Yeah, I remember also that I, I think many of the original, my original idea, which I, I had George order from Bob Madel three issues of Weird Tales from about 1940. Because that's actually, I think, the era in which Weird Tales looked the best. It was, had the best design and the best artwork around late in the 39, 40, 41. Uh, anyway, so our first issues, you know, the book paper ones, were designed to look, not look like issues from the 20s. Because most of the, if you actually go back and look at the issues from the 20s, many of the covers are really quite bad and the interior art is awful. But if you look at the issues from about 1940, they're quite handsome. So the original Terminus Weird Tales, the, the book paper ones, there were 14 of them, are really designed to look like Weird Tales from about 1940, only on better paper. And you know, it, it really, when we opened the first box of our first issue and I took out a copy, that was when I thought, this is Weird Tales. Yeah. It, it really became real at that point. Um, a couple of notes about the production of the, the first issues was, um, let's see, George Barr designed the new logo. He based it on the old one. Yeah, the, the classic. The, the classic the one. St. John logo. But it, it's actually, if you compare them side by side, you'll see that there's subtle differences. Uh, because we actually didn't have a good logo to shoot from for the covers, which is why I think the um, the California issues had actually not great looking logos. But they all they all tried to copy this because you know this is probably next to the New Yorker. This is the best known logo in all of publishing. Um, it's up there, but 
I'm not sure. But about I mean, that. It, it, you know, this is this is looking like the weird tales now or seventy years ago. You know, um, uh, and the other other note would be that um, George wanted to revive Planet Stories instead. Did you remember that? He talked about it. Yeah, he, he really well, wanted to do another he, science fiction magazine. He wanted to. Yeah, he well, his Asimov's Adventures was basically an attempt to revive Planet Stories, and it didn't work. That doesn't mean he gave up. No, it doesn't mean he gave up. Uh, he was also still publishing books. Yeah, he, he was actually hoping that uh, Weird Tales would become successful enough that we could do a second magazine, Planet Stories, okay. at some point. Um, and um, why don't you tell why why George was fired from Amazing? Is that well? Well, the, the main reason George was fired he wasn't fired. He he, he actually left amiably, and he in fact was left to uh, um, advise his successor. Uh, the main reason is is that George didn't want to move to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and um, they, they wanted to consolidate the editorship at the uh, at the TSR uh, headquarters. Yeah, so. and George lived in Philadelphia, and George was also a sort of hobbyist of house design. They were constantly re redesigning the house and so on. So he didn't want to give this up, and he certainly did not want to move to Wisconsin. Uh, he would go out there every once in a while, and so it was a completely amiable parting. But they decided that the, the guy at Patrick Price, who was the assistant editor in, uh, in Lake Geneva, should just take over. And Patrick and Price was a quite a good editor. And he did. And he, he did. was. And he did. Um, so he wasn't fired. He, you know, they, they agreed well, to part their ways. Now, like Weird him. Tales in its heyday, you talk about the great three, Lovecraft, Howard, yeah. Smith. Who were your superstar authors? I think Tanith Lee would have to be up oh, there. Oh, absolutely, the first one. I think we, had, we did have a Three Musketeers of Weird Tales, just like the old days. I, mean, I would say that our, our Lovecraft was Thomas Ligotti, our, our Clark Ashton Smith was Tanith Lee, and our Robert E. Howard was Keith Taylor, and our Margaret Brundage was Rowena Morrow. Because, you know, look at this cover. This is a perfect Weird Tales cover, even though we got that off a t-shirt. Uh, she had done this for something called Jersey Devil Con, and it was was and then we uh, um, not not quite. I had met her at uh, the Byron Price offices yeah. where I was working, and uh, I asked her if she would do a a reprint cover for us, and yeah. she gave us yeah. Two. One of the deep dark secrets of how to acquire cover art is if you buy out a portfolio, it's cheap, and, and also if you find artists who love weird tales and are willing to help uh, subsidize yeah. it, that also oh, helps. We also had a certain number like recycled, uh, you know, we would go to the to Jane Frank, the uh, art agent, and we would ask for paintings that had been used on, you know, gaming covers or something, or... Uh, There's some really great art out there. We really did, yeah, we got a lot of, you know, or, or something published in England. You several Ian Miller, Miller covers that had been published in England on something else. Um, but basically, in the early, early days, we actually, when we actually spent money like water because we thought we were going to make a profit, uh, we, we would commission people to, to do illustrate whole issues. And then, so that would be an original painting. You know, you would, somebody, you would have somebody like Vincent DeFate or... Um, oh, yeah, yeah the, George Barr illustrated the entire first issue we did. Uh, Stephen Fabian did the entire second issue. Carl Lundgren did the entire third, third issue. And the fourth one was... Uh, Hank Jenkins. I think, yeah, it was Hank Jenkins. Yeah, that was the Alvin Davidson issue. And uh, anyway, it went on like this. We had a lot of very good, very good artists who were doing original work for us, and then we could no longer afford that. Um, yeah, the, uh, the first issue actually sold 14,500 copies, which was more than Amazing Stories was selling at the time, which sort yeah. of vindicated George's strategy of trying to get the magazine promoted. Um, because 
TSR just wouldn't promote amazing stories. Yeah, they didn't know how to promote anything, but... They, um, they were used to products that sold themselves to gamers. Yeah. Oh, one thing I should also mention that was really neat that George Barr did in that first issue is, um, with full awareness of the Weird Tales tradition, his illustrations in that issue are imitations of classic... Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he did classic, a Virgil Finlay. He did a Virgil Finlay. He did a Hannes Bach. He even did a Dolgov. And so he, he would do, uh, you know... In his, he would basically sort of pastiche all of these other artists into, well, just that one issue, but he just did it for fun. Yeah, it was a really, really good showcase for his talent. I think he's a much uh, underrated artist, and it's a shame he's not drawing anymore. Yes. Now, distribution, uh, how much was uh, specialty stores? Most of, subscription? Them, most of them went out through the comics direct distribution system of uh, Diamond Comics and Capital Cities. And uh, Capital Cities actually took more. So it was a real blow when the two companies merged and Diamond cut their order in half. Yeah. Well, they actually got on newsstands at the time. I mean, there, there were newsstands in those days. I remember in the town where I lived, you could actually find Weird Tales on the newsstand. Um, this is, by the way, something I think we can, we can be quite proud of, um, which is that we have achieved flea market immortality. Um, copies of those issues, particularly the ones that are on book paper, they're, they're pretty common because uh, enough of them got out. I mean, by today's standards, 10,000 copies on the newsstand is astonishing. Uh, of course, in those days, you know, 60,000 on the newsstand would be typical to say analog, but magazines don't do that anymore. And since they're on book paper, well, these copies will last for centuries. Let's just say that science fiction and fantasy magazines don't do that anymore because there's plenty well, of magazines actually. There are, but basically... They're the generic health and fitness and women's interest yeah, and Playboy. Yeah, but basically there really aren't very many newsstands, so they're basically, it's, it's, it's your the magazine rack in Barnes and & Noble. And, and the, the drugstores have some. Supermarkets uh, have a few. And um, Anyway. anyway you, and you tell us questions. a bit about your hardcover exercise. Oh. Yes, we were trying to appeal to a collector's market by doing the, uh, the magazines, since it was quarterly, in uh, nice hardcover editions signed by the featured authors, when we were doing featured authors. And there were also trade hardcovers. Uh, yes. Yeah. For a while. For a while. Until they learned that they didn't sell fast enough to make it worthwhile. Yeah. And even I don't know, uh, nobody knows how many were printed. Not very many. I think in some cases the, uh, the signed editions actually may have had more copies than the unsigned editions. But... Um, the idea, we basically ripped off the idea from Whispers magazine. Remember, Whispers was doing limiteds. And I think the problem was, the reason why it only didn't work was that we were basically a victim of our own success. Uh, the magazine was now coming out regularly enough that every new issue is not an event. If, if say, Analog did a sign limited of every issue, they wouldn't sell because it would just be another issue of Analog. You know, so after about, about 10 of these, I think the, the sort of collector's market got somewhat saturated, and they, they didn't sell, but, or didn't sell nearly as fast as they should have. Uh, I will tell you, for the collectors, the ones that are worth money, <laughs> uh, probably, one of them, probably the one that is worth the most money is the, is the, um, uh, the Thomas Legati issue, 303, and then the Carl Wagner and the Robert Block, Those are, and, and then maybe the Jonathan Carroll. Those are the ones that tend to go for fairly astronomical prices on eBay or somewhere. Well, the authors are intensely collected. Yeah, exactly. The authors who are intensely collected, and also the collectors go nuts for the Chet Williamson issue, but that's because of the Stephen King story. Yeah, Chet, poor Chet didn't have much to do with that. Well, basically, it has the first printing of first hardcover printing of Stephen King's The Glass Four with a new introduction, and the King, you know, 
obsessive king collectors have to have that one. But well, what we'll say about Chet is that the uh, well, he's a great writer. So I'm surprised he's not here. He usually comes. Um, his st lead story on that issue, a story called Jabby Welsh, is one of the best ghost stories I've ever read. It's just really astonishing. Uh, and uh, so, we, you know, we, we do not downgrade Chet Williamson, even if, even if his autograph doesn't sell. <laughs> what, why the decision to focus on specific authors? It, it was a marketing thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, we, we wanted every hook we could get to launch the magazine successfully. At one point, we had delusions that we were going to make a living off this, and we'd be all set for life. You know, it, it could happen. So well, parallel universe. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the not, secret not of this, this field is that everything you do is either a part-time job or a hobby. As long as you don't have delusions of making a living, you can have a very exciting career. So there was a bit of being out of pocket from time to time? Uh, yeah, it really got out of pocket at one point. I mean, I personally published five issues. Um, basically, I am the publisher for Weird Tales 308, and all four issues of, weird of Worlds of Fantasy and Horror, which is 309 to 312. Yeah, I was gone at that point. I had left for a, a New York editing career. Yeah, and I, um, uh, basically, I would put about $3,000 in and usually get about $2,000 back. And as I was about to get married at this point, uh, George said, told me, he said, you know, you can't keep doing this. And so we, we put together one more issue, the final Worlds of Fantasy and Horror. It was the biggest bang we could possibly produce, the best issue we could produce. And hoping maybe that'll just generate enough revenue. But then Warren Lapine came galloping to the rescue, and he had regained. See what had happened? We had lost the um, we had lost the license for Weird Tales because um, the owners of the license thought that they they had a television deal, and therefore they they took it away. And that that was Robert Weinberg uh, and his partner Victor Drix. Yeah, and therefore the um, you had two options at this point. Quit or change the title. I managed to convince George that we could, we could keep going. And what we needed was a big red W. And the reason it's called Worlds of Fantasy and Horror, which is a not really very imaginative title, is it still has a big red W. So if you put it on the newsstand, you'd still see that. And you'd know it, you'd know it was Weird Tales even if it wasn't. And in fact, it um, had total continuity. So that in the first issue of Worlds of Fantasy and Horror, there is the reader vote and the letter column referring back to Weird Tales 308. And the, the department heads have changed, but it's otherwise completely the same. The design is completely the same. And then when it went back to Weird Tales, the uh, Weird Tales 313, the first uh, Warren Lapine issue, um, the re reader voting for best story is for World of Fantasy and Horror 4, and the letters are referring back to that. And so. Uh, and uh, George kept the, the volume numbering for Weird Tales, so that if you didn't have those four issues, your, your run of Weird Tales is incomplete. Yeah, those are the, the, the Weird Tales in Exile issues. But they are, they are weird tales in every possible sense, ex except that some of the lettering on the cover is a little different. And what non-fictional characteristics of weird tales did you keep? The eerie letters? Yeah, the eerie. I, I, yeah, I wrote most of the editorials, um, the, uh, the essay parts of the editorials. Um, well, was John book, was a book reviewer for, for a while. For, for some years, yeah. Uh, I did a lot of the interviews, because right? I were already a very you know active interviewer. So. Uh, Frequently, I would be the one who interviewed the feature author, although we, we did buy interviews from other people. I think you did most of the limericks, too. I, I did substantial. George loved limericks. And I'd finally, after many years of associating with him, learned how to write them. They're all clean, of course. Oh, they're clean. Well, they, well some are more squamous than others. Well, well things like, for, I think the first one, he, oh, actually, I started selling limericks to George at Amazing. 
But, um, you know, things like a creature that lived in a pond with tentacular reach would abscond with brave men and true and old ladies too and children of which it was fond. <laughs> See, and, and I also rhymed Cthulhu in a limerick once too. Actually, that was an amazing too. <laughs> yeah, yes. the, the old weird tales when it was in fiscal troubles went back to reprints. Oh, Did yeah. you look into yeah. that area too? Oh, here's our famous bricks without straw issue. Uh, when we were in financial trouble, one of the many times we were in financial trouble, um, Warren Lapine, who was still the publisher at this point, told us to put together an issue for almost nothing. So, what to do? Um, well, the cover, the cover is a reprint. Uh, the, uh, the Michael Bishop novella had been published in some, uh, some small press book that had been distributed at a convention. I don't remember where he was guest of honor. You know, they published a book and there was a, nobody saw that. The uh, Ian Watson story is a reprint from, uh, uh, well, maybe? from it was from Fear, Fear. British magazine. We, well, you, we would frequently raid the pages of British magazines because we did not buy British rights. We only bought American rights. So we could, whenever we wanted to up the, uh, the quality in Weird Tales, one of the standard tricks was to go raid the pages of Interzone. Um, then there is a public domain story in here, The Coffin Merchant by Richard, by Richard Middleton. Uh, and then there are a couple of others. But anyway, this issue was done for cheap. And it's, and it's got an interview with Terry Pratchett. Uh, you know, we, I'm not ashamed, you know, there are no apologies for this, but the budget was much lower yeah. than usual. And I, I helped prop up the magazine a bit at that time. Um, I bought a half interest from Warren Lapine at some point yeah. for $10,000. Yeah. And then mm. when his financial problems uh, got worse, uh, I bought the rest of the magazine from him, which sort of, Made it yeah. a wild side press magazine for a while. Yeah. The one thing, I, I was never a part owner. I just sort of worked there. I didn't, let's say, own any stock such as there was any. Yep. Which basically made John the boss. <laughs> so in retrospect, because one hopefully learns in retrospect, what would you have done differently? Not published a magazine. <laughs> uh, you know, what I would have you know, done differently no. is I would, I would have put it in this format on cheaper paper from the get-go. From the get-go. See, what, what I had lobbied to do at one point was change it to a hardback annual like Pulp House did. And I think that would have worked a lot uh, well, better. Basically, I think a mistake, I will admit a mistake I made was that I told, I urged George, when we, we basically, we were, it was clear that this is not going to work financially by after about six or seven issues of the book paper issues. But I suggested that we not go to a cheaper format because that would look like a retreat. And if a magazine looks like it's in decline, nobody will subscribe to it because they think it's going to die. And therefore, I, we, I probably kept us in the book paper format too long. And uh, basically, what I, so basically, my answer would be use cheaper paper. Um, and uh, otherwise, by, by, by you know, fair means and foul, we managed to keep it up for quite a long time. I realized that I was actually editor or co-editor or something for longer than Farnsworth Wright. And then some crazy guy at uh, Wildside Press fired everybody, including me. Yeah, well, he owned the magazine. He could do whatever he wanted. Now, the, our, our, uh, I was bringing in some younger employees who were wildly enthusiastic but thought it was a state and old-fashioned magazine that wouldn't appeal to anybody today, any new readers. So um, they lobbied me to try changing the editor. So um, I fired the three of us, and we hired Ann Vandermeer to take over. And Steve Siegel, who was a brilliant magazine designer and book designer, uh, designed the insides uh, on practically no budget, let me say. 
since uh, Wildside Press was starting to have some financial problems too at that time due to some distributor issues. And um, uh, they actually won a Hugo Award for it, which uh, was kind of surprising, but I think it was due to the Australian balloting system where nobody voted for Weird Tales for first place, but a lot of people would never vote for Locust no matter what. So we won on the second go through of the ballots, which was uh, surprising, anyway. but happy. <laughs> surprising. It never occurred to me that it would ever be eligible for a Hugo. We did have a, you know, but we did win the World Fantasy Award. Now, a bit of a plug for a number of dealers in the rooms. For those who originally read uh, Bob Weinberg's Weird, Weird Tales stories, it was re-released a couple of years ago. Daryl has some more content in there, and it's a good up, update and grounding on the unique magazine. But speaking of plugs, do you gentlemen tell us about some of your current endeavors? Well, my, my big project at the moment is up on Kickstarter. I'm writing a sequel to uh, Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, which was, pub which was filmed as The Thing by John uh, Carpenter. And um, I managed the uh, Campbell estate for his uh, daughter and grandchildren. So that, that's how I managed to get permission. I gave it to myself. I recommend that highly. Okay, well, what I'm doing, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm editing a lot of anthology, I'm editing anthologies. I'm editing an anthology called Cold War Cthulhu, which may be one of those, you know, glib ideas that sounded better, easier to sell than it is to do. But uh, I'm doing it for PS Publishing. I seem to be accumulating, I mean, I seem to be uh, basically um, through the archival stage of my career, assembling volumes of this and that. I'm assembling two volumes of uh, uh, old interviews, and I'm, when I have time, I will be ready to do another volume of essays, and there's enough short fiction right now for another, for another collection, which a couple people have expressed interest in. And uh, I still do try to write things. I tried to, actually, I tried to write a story for, for, for Cold War Cthulhu and had to reject it. Uh, now, the reason was that I figured I was getting all these stories about, you know, the military and the, uh, um, the Russians trying to co-opt the, in, the Innsmouth people or something. And I wanted something. I, I decided what I needed is a story about duck and cover drills, which is something I can actually remember. And um, so I wrote a perfectly good story about duck and cover drills, but it didn't have anything to do with Lovecraft or Cthulhu, and there was no way to make it, you know, the integrity of the story uh, did not require that. I would have wrecked the story if I tried to drag Cthulhu into it. Sounds like you need to try again. I need to try again. Uh, so basically, I'm sending that story someplace else. I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll sell it and it'll be fine, but um, it, it did not fit my book. Um, I, I Oh, I should also mention my Weird Tales related. Well, our Weird Tales related stuff, we, we have revived the, uh, the Best of Weird Tales by Year anthology. So, the 19, John is working on the 1924 yeah. one. Yeah, Marvin Kay and I did 1923 about 25 years ago. Something. Oh, a while back. It, it's been a while. But we're going to now do maybe one a year. And also, I'm editing a series of Weird Tales anthologies for Centipede Press, which. Um, Basically, one will be the, 19, the 1920s one is basically ready to go. And he was last I heard, he was waiting for a couple pieces of artwork. Um, and then there'll be a 1930s volume, and then one to the 40s, 50s. And the, the these being centipede press books, most of you are probably familiar with centipede press books. 
This being a 600-page centipede press book with um, color interior artwork and, 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 and you know whole pages of cover reproduction, you know a whole section of cover reproduction. Anyway, it'll be the size of a suitcase. It's going to be very expensive. Yep. Uh, there'll be three of them the size of suitcases. But the ultimate incredibly deluxe Weird Tales anthologies is what I'm doing, uh, among my other bad habits. Mike would welcome a contributor copy for a future Pulp Fest to uh, donate to a prize. Yeah, winner. right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, I have a sinking <laughs> feeling. I'll answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a sinking feeling this thing's going to retail for like $300. I mean, uh, you look at what Centipede Press prices for the big ones. This is going to be a big one. Do we have any uh, questions from you? Know, John, you're the best of Weird Tales. That's a wild side book. Uh, yeah, the twenty. Oh, yeah. So yeah. This will be affordable. Yeah, the nineteen twenty-three yeah, yeah. one. I think yeah. is twelve dollars. Yeah, it's twelve dollars. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I mean the, the next one. Yeah, it'll probably be thirteen dollars. There'll be wild side. Yeah. Yeah, I have those on my table. The, the nineteen twenty-three book. I might have actually got copies with me. Uh, and, if, and if anyone wants the weird tale story, I have copies. I have five yeah. at my table. Yeah, the, uh, the, yeah. I have. I wrote like six chapters in that. Including the a, a memoir of Weird Tales since 1954, yeah, in I which think. I tell all sorts of remarkable stories, like how we got away got away without being sued. Because uh, at one point we basically owed too much money to the printer, and really had no leg to stand on. And fortunately, the, the printer played it, played it stupid. Uh, what we actually had proposed to them was that they um, we will sell we will basically start selling. Uh, Batches, batches of back issues, and you, you know, you ship them, and you keep all the money, and this would sort of work off the debt. But no, the printer decided to um, sue us instead. And um, but of course, the problem is it never, never got anywhere because, of course, we had no assets. The only assets were the warehouse full of magazines that the printer already had in his possession. So he probably pulped them. So actually, that means some of those issues are probably not uh, as com quite as common as some of the others. But um, basically, the printer probably got like two cents on the dollar, and we, we you know, it's sort of we're, we're like the adventurer who must a couple times in your life abandon your luggage. So we did. <laughs> we had to basically drop our inventory and escape, and then the magazine was able to continue with a new printer, I assume. What? With a new printer, I assume. With a new printer, yeah. With a new printer, I don't think they were talking to us after that, but uh, they just didn't want to cooperate and, and sort of. We, we were willing to work with them and try to work our way out of this, but uh, they didn't want to do that. And um, so basically, and there are the other, actually, by the way, there are a couple of other issues that had mix-ups with, with printers. Um, another issue for, for you collectors, Worlds of Fantasy and Horror 2, otherwise known as Weird Tale 310, is scarce. And the reason was that apparently the printer got the wrong instructions and they mailed out the initial orders and then threw out the rest. So we never were able to sell that one as a back issue. Hmm. That's the Charles DeLint issue. Ah, that's a shame. Yeah. Whereas the issue after that, number three, I still have bales of those. Uh, so there'll be a rush tomorrow morning in the dealer's room. Well, yeah, I actually do have a bale of those. I mean, there'll be a rush, but I don't have, have any, uh, any of the, uh, the DeLint issue, which is a shame. It was a very good issue. Uh, there's a question. What's the best of the original art that you use for covers? What? What's the best original art that you use for the covers? It, it depends on your taste because the styles are so different. You know, I, I love the second issue's Fabian cover. Mm. Um, I love George Barr's first one. 
Uh, the Ruby on Morals, both of them are terrific. I like this one a lot. Oh, yeah. The uh, there's this one, there's the boy whistling while the monsters behind him too. I believe. Yeah, I know that we never used that. No, you didn't use that. Okay. No, that but that's this one. This is this is a, a um, this is a defate. My my view is that's basically what weird. And, and you know, anytime in the last century, you know, that's an issue of weird tales. You know, a little vampire skull. And, that's a very good one. Uh, there's a lot of great art on him. Uh, the Carl Lundgren is actually excellent. Uh, it's um, it's three vultures uh, clustered together, but if you look at it from a distance, it looks like a skull. It's a very clever, cleverly designed cover. Did you have a, a freeze homage or something to the original uh, Weird Tales cover? Well, one thing we did was, uh, was Kelly, Kelly Freeze repainted as one of his, one of his original paintings for us. Yeah, yeah, he was still alive back then. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, can't remember who some of the others were. Well, Hank Jankus did a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, Jankus did a wonderful one, and then he died on us. Um, you know, Fabian did a bunch. Barr did a bunch. Barr did a bunch. Um, there was a, there was this. Gan Wilson did a cover for us. Oh yeah, Gan Wilson did the three hundredth issue uh, because uh, Block and Gan Wilson were friends, so they went together quite well. That was a nice one. That's the green creature. Looming over. Well, no, it's, black, it's, a, it's black. a guy. It's a, it's a, basically, it's a caricature of Block with right. beetles coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Uh, and um, I can't remember who did the cover. It was a very good. Oh, it was Thomas Kidd did the cover for the, for the Jonathan Carroll issue. And um, oh, who did the cover for the John Brenner issue? That was a good one. Oh, I don't remember. I don't. Re I don't remember all of these. There's, there's just too many. There's too, <laughs> there's too many of them. <laughs> Um, Rick Somebody was a very painterly fellow that I met at in, in New England Painter did one cover, uh, but I can't now remember his last name. Rick Barry. What? Rick Barry. Rick what? Barry. Yeah, Rick Barry. Yeah. Yeah, we had one Rick Barry cover. And I actually, you know, the readers didn't really, that was one of our more painterly covers. Some of the readers didn't like that one. What, what the, re the readers really liked was the Rowena covers. Who can blame them? <laughs> they were great. Well, they're great, but I think I think what actually that does tell you is that a lot of fiction readers and a lot of magazine readers they like they don't like abstraction. They like uh, you know literal literal vivid images, you know this sort of thing. They they, they like that. And uh, I, I would have used a lot. Well, we used several Ruinas. Um, um, we, we probably should have tried to get. Uh, some more people like Boris Vallejo. I don't think we could have afforded him, even in our. Oh, he's a very nice guy. I I got yeah. a, a cover from his stepson actually because he was too busy at the time for for uh, an anthology that George edited. Yeah, the Cattails I mean, one. You know, when toward the end we weren't even able to afford the three hundred dollars. You know, the three hundred dollar paintings from uh, from uh, Jane Frank anymore. You know, because they're, they're basically the three hundred bucks is about the. The price for a professional artist who will give you an out-of-portfolio painting, because see, they didn't have to do any work. The painting already existed, and usually they want—they're—they're they're very happy to have a magazine they can show around with their painting on it. So they, the, the artist has already got a painting that fits. You can pre frequently get it fairly cheaply. If you commission a new painting, that costs a lot more. Yeah, it does take time. And as the budget went down and down and down, um, you know, so and we, did, we didn't get rich off this. No, we got poor. <laughs> <laughs> We're good. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast. 
Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.